Let me read God's word beginning in Zechariah chapter 3, verse 1. Zechariah says, Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of Yahweh, or the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And Yahweh said to Satan, Yahweh rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, Yahweh, who has chosen Jerusalem, rebuke you. Is this not a brand delivered from the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and standing before the angel. And he answered and spoke to those who were standing before him, saying, Remove the filthy garments from him. Again, he said to him, See, I have made your iniquity pass away from you and will clothe you with festal robes. Then I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments while the angel of Yahweh was standing by. Amen. Let's pray and ask God's blessing. Oh God, you gave to your servant Zechariah a vision, an amazing scene. And then you had it recorded in Holy Scripture. And here we are several thousand years later. Your people who name your son as our Lord and Savior. And we're asking that your spirit who gave these words would now give understanding. Not only with our heads, but in our innermost being, in our hearts. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. In order to help you understand these five verses this morning, we need to spend a few moments doing some background work. There's a historical context. There's a biblical background. And first, I want to help you understand Israel. Joshua, the high priest here, is standing before God, before the angel of Yahweh. And in his high priestly role, he He doesn't just represent himself. He represents the nation. And even in a first reading, you notice that the angel of the Lord, the angel of Yahweh, called God, Yahweh, the one who has chosen Jerusalem. Jerusalem being the capital city of Israel and Judah, the ancient chosen people of God. In the mystery of God's plan and God's sovereignty, God, out of all the nations on earth, elected this nation, Israel, and chose them for unique and holy purpose. That they would be the inheritors of and the mediators of the gospel, the good news of salvation for sinners, to all peoples and to all nations. God chose them. The fact that God chose Israel as a nation is spelled out in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6. God said to them, you are a holy people to Yahweh your God. Yahweh your God has chosen you to be a people for his own treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. God goes on to say, 
Yahweh did not choose to set his affection on you, nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of the peoples, but because Yahweh loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your fathers. The Lord Yahweh brought you out of Egypt with a strong hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, the hand of Pharaoh and the king of Egypt. I don't know how people don't believe in the doctrine of election and read their Bible. If you struggle with election on the individual level, um, you at least need to recognize the clear, plain, blatant teaching that God elected this nation for a peculiar purpose, for a function, for a role. And that role God told the Israelites in Exodus chapter 19, verse 5 and following, was that as a nation, they would serve as a nation of priests, that they would serve and worship God, but that also in, as being the ones in whom ultimately Christ would come, through whom Christ would come, and as, in, as ambassadors of the gospel, that they would, in a sense, be mediators for the whole world. God said in Exodus chapter 19 to, the Isra- to Israel, if you will indeed listen to my voice and keep my covenant, then you, as a nation, shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. They were to serve as representatives to God among all the nations of the earth. The nation had a unique role. It didn't mean that every single Jewish person was saved. It's clear in the Old Testament that they weren't, and it's clear in the New Testament that they weren't. But as a national entity, as a nation, and notice the emphasis there on nation, God had a select, elect purpose for Israel. They were to be a holy nation, set apart by and for God. But in fact, as we know in the history of the Old Testament, though they were set apart to God, though God elected Israel, chose Israel, they were in practice, a nation of sinners. Among them, there were a few who were God-fearers, a relatively few who sought to obey God, but their history was one of wholesale rebellion, gross disobedience, idolatry, and sin. But God knew that even before he chose them, And so as one of the provisions for this sinful nation, God, in their worship, appointed one man to be a high priest. There were numerous priests among Israel and the tribe of Levi, and then there were the sons of Aaron. But then among the sons of Aaron, there was to be one high priest. And of course, Aaron was the first high priest. And he was to minister on behalf of this sinful nation to holy God. He, he was to carry out the sacrifices to atone for their sins. And particularly on the Day of Atonement, once a year, he was, enter, he was to enter into the tabernacle, into the holy place, and then into the very holy of holies. To bear Israel before God, to lift them up, and to intercede on their behalf. The high priest had a very unique role. And that was beautifully and marvelously pictured in even the way that he was dressed. 
We certainly don't have time this morning to go into all the details of that, but it was magnificent, kingly garb that the high priest was dressed in, clean, pure, ordered, beautiful. But interestingly, among the various um, implements and uh, aspects of his dress and of his uniform, you might say, there were on his shoulders two onyx stones. And as an indication of his representing the nation before God, God commanded in Exodus chapter 28 that on those two stones that were on the high priest's shoulders, the names of the 12 tribes were to be inscribed. It's it's amazing, moving picture that the high priest, as he went in before God intercede, he, he literally was carrying the people on his shoulders before God. God had provided for that. Even more personal, in Exodus chapter 28, verse 28, God had commanded that the the high priest not only have this ephod, this garment that went around his shoulders, but he also had this, this breast piece, this breastplate of gold and precious stones. And God said, commanded that in the instructions of fashioning this breast piece, that Aaron would have this breast piece over his chest. And God said in Exodus 28, verse 29, Aaron shall carry the names of the sons of Israel in the breast piece. They were not only inscribed on the shoulders, but over this breast piece. And God said he shall carry the names of the sons of Israel's Israel in the breastpiece of judgment over his heart when he comes into the holy place for remembrance before Yahweh continually. On his shoulders, on his heart, he bore the people of Israel. And then literally, literally topping off the high priest's representative garb and his robe was a turban, a majestic hat on his head, And God gave instructions in Exodus 28 about that. In verse 36, God said, You shall make a plate of pure gold, shall engrave on it like the engraving of a signet, holy to Yahweh. You shall fasten that engraving, holy to Yahweh, on gold to a blue cord, and it shall be on the turban. It shall be at the front of the turban. So God appointed the high priest to intercede for the people of Israel, to bear their names on his shoulders, on his heart, and and in such a way as to picture that Israel as a nation was set apart for a holy purpose, that their sins would be removed, and ultimately that they would be holy to Yahweh. Incredible. But by the time, many years later, nearly a thousand years later, after Aaron, the first high priest, Zechariah, by the time Zechariah is ministering around 522 BC, Israel and Judah has a pattern of not just a few years of sin, but centuries of sin, nearly a millennia, millennium of sin, a thousand years. And so God, after nearly a thousand year record of Israel and Judah violating the covenant he'd enter into with them. 
by their miserably and wretchedly profaning their holy and privileged role among the nations, God had judged them severely. He had brought in the Assyrians to take over Israel in the north, and they had been removed and ex-scattered. And then God had brought the Babylonians, and they had come to Judah in the south, even overtaking Jerusalem and even destroying the temple and burning it so that it was unrecognizable, a pile of rubble. It would seem that God is done with Israel and Judah. After all, they had nearly a thousand-year record of unbelief, of disobedience. And of course, that remains to this day. The nation of Israel reconstituted in Israel in, in the Middle East today is largely comprised of secular unbelieving Jews and also those who are pharisaical Jews trusting in their own righteousness and not recognizing Jesus of Nazareth as their Messiah. Partial hardening, as the Apostle Paul said, has occurred in Israel. There are some Jews who know Christ as Messiah. Jesus as Messiah as the Christ, but very few. So surely it would seem that God is done with Israel. That where Zechariah, where he's standing from after he's returned, the city's still in rubble. Maybe the first foundation layer of the temple has been set, but, but they're nothing. It would seem that God is done. And in fact, there are people today who, who hold that out. Confessing Christians, often strangely, those who in individual salvation hold out a very high view of election. Among Reformed people, there's, and, and we count ourselves as a church, among those who have a Reformed view of God's salvation of men and women, that God elects men and women from before the foundation of the world in the mystery of his sovereignty and promise, and then in time, sends someone to tell them the gospel, regenerates their heart, convicts them by the Holy Spirit, and grants them repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Reform people who have a high view of election, no problem with individual election. It's very strange that they don't believe in national election. Very strange. When it's very clear in the Old Testament that God elected Israel. It's black on white. And in our text this morning, I just need to say, this is not the main point, but if you have a view of election that you can entertain the idea of election on an individual level, but you can't entertain the idea that God and his sovereignty chose Israel for specific purposes, then whatever name you go by, dear beloved friend, the problem is not that you have a view of election. The problem is that your view of election is not high enough. If reformed view of election does not hold out that sovereign, almighty God can elect a nation then reformed theology needs to be reformed. And it is not the case that all reformed people denied national election. There have been notable reformed greats. Donald Gray Barnhouse, Presbyterian minister in Philadelphia. J.C. Ryle, Episcopal minister in England. Robert Murray McShane. On and on. 
of reformed theologians and pastors who recognize the Bible clearly teaches God's election of this nation. But surely at the time of Zechariah's day and to this day, it would seem that God is done. And God gives now in Zechariah chapter 3 a vision to Zechariah that teaches God's not done with his election of Israel. God has given to Zechariah two visions so far. And Zechariah is living, as we've learned, in a discouraging time for Israel and Judah. Again, it would seem that God is done with them. And it's in the standing and in the place of, in the context of this glorious, tragic, sin-saturated, historic context of Israel's failure, that Zechariah is given a third vision. And this third vision is unique among the other scenes of the other visions. He's already seen a, a vision of various horses, and we've seen the angel of the Lord in a, in a ravine, in a valley, and these different scenes that Zechariah sees. But here, this is, a unique, this is a unique vision. In fact, it's very unique in the whole Scripture. Because Zechariah sees a scene taking place not on earth, but in the very throne room of heaven. And eyewitness accounts of the throne room of heaven are extremely rare in Scripture. Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, the Apostle John are some of the only ones I can think of, at least off the top of my head who were among the very select men that have ever lived, who were given a vision of the very throne room of heaven. It's extremely rare to be given and to have it recorded in Scripture a view of the throne room of heaven. But even more unique and recorded only twice in Scripture, only two places in Scripture, is a scene or view of heaven's throne room with God there, of course, and God and mankind's arch enemy, Satan, there as well. Only two places in Scripture. The only other place than Zechariah 3 is in the book of Job. And even in the book of Job, remember, Job doesn't see that vision. He's suffering, he's hurting. But he has no idea of the scene that's going on in heaven. Only we, by the Holy Spirit having recorded in Scripture, we are given through Scripture insight to what's going on. And Job is standing there, rather Satan is standing there accusing Job. But in this scene, Zechariah is given a sight that no man, no other man has been given. No other man has ever been given a sight of this. Job didn't see this. What did he see? Well, first, in Zechariah chapter 3, Zechariah sees Joshua the high priest. Then he, verse 1 says, showed me Joshua the high priest. Who's he? The angel that is uh, 
Zechariah's guide, you might call him. He sees Joshua the high priest. And notice that he sees Joshua. This is not the Joshua of Exodus. That, that, that guy lived about a thousand years earlier. This is Joshua of Zechariah's day. He is one of the two main leaders. There's Joshua the high priest who is working with the exiles who've come back from Babylon. And Zerubbabel who is the heir to the throne of David. So you have Zerubbabel and you have Joshua, who's the high priest. And notice the emphasis, Joshua, the high priest. He was named after that great hero in Israel's history, but this Joshua was first and foremost not a warrior, he was a priest. And as high priest, Joshua stands before Yahweh, and he represents not only himself, but Israel and Judah as a whole. That's why we spent that early part of this message on the role of the high priest. As Joshua is standing here, this is not a a story or a vision of how Joshua's sins were removed. It is truly, of course, about his sin. But Joshua is standing there in the function of high priest. And if that wasn't clear, notice that in verse 2, God says in his rebuke, God has chosen not Joshua, but Jerusalem. And later in the text, it says that God is going to renew and care for the land, remove iniquity from the land. So this isn't just about one man. Certainly it involves that one man, but this is Joshua in his high priestly role. He is the high priest designated by God to represent the nation before Yahweh. Secondly, Zechariah sees the angel of Yahweh, verse 1. He sees Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of Yahweh. And we have learned that the angel of Yahweh is no ordinary angel. He's not unlike the other angels. He is, in fact, Yahweh himself. And yet somehow distinct from Yahweh. And in the Old Testament, we learn that this is the second person of the Trinity, of the Godhead. This is none other than God the Son. This angel of Yahweh is Christ. This is Christ. This is Lord Jesus. Before he had become a man, before he is incarnate, but this is the second person of the Trinity. This is God the Son, the angel of Yahweh. Thirdly, Zechariah sees Satan. He sees Joshua standing before the angel of Yahweh and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. Standing meaning he's ready, he's active, he's active, he is loaded, he is prepared, he is, he is anxious to accuse Joshua of his sin. Satan is there in the very throne room of God. And that's what Satan is called in the Bible, the accuser of the brethren, because the very name Satan means to accuse. And in Hebrew, in in the original wording here, verse 1 reads something like this, and Satan was standing at Joshua's right hand to Satan Joshua, to Satan him, to accuse him. Satan means accuse. Satan is doing exactly what he was doing in the book of Job, accusing those whom God had elected. 
God had chosen Job as his servant, and Satan was accusing him. God has chosen Joshua, God has chosen Israel, and Satan is there to accuse. Fourth, Zechariah sees the other angels who serve Yahweh and the angel of Yahweh. These individuals or beings are commanded, for example, in verse 4, the angel of the Lord, in verse 4, speaks to those who are standing before him. These are the angels. They're the servants of God in the throne room of God. And fifth, not seen by Zechariah, but clearly and mysteriously present, is Yahweh himself, God, the Father. Yahweh, who is one with and yet distinct from the angel of the Lord, who is also Yahweh, as will become clear So this is the only place in Scripture that I'm aware of that we are given a view to the reality of God, Satan, Christ, and sinful man before the throne of God. But it's not a stationary scene, is it? Zechariah sees these various individuals, these various actors, and he sees them acting. First, Zechariah sees Joshua, the high priest, as if the nation itself was standing before the angel of Yahweh. And remember in Israel's history that it was the angel of Yahweh, the angel of the Lord, that had gone before Israel out of Egypt, had been the pillar of fire by night and the pillar of smoke by day. It was the angel who had guided Israel. It was the angel of Yahweh that Yahweh commanded Israel to obey his voice. And Joshua here, the high priest, is standing before the angel of Yahweh. It's another indication that the angel of Yahweh is worthy of worship. He's standing there and before the angel of Yahweh, but they are not alone. There's another fearsome, glorious, and terrible being, Satan. And Satan, as I said, is standing ready, prepared, eager, and practiced to bring up Joshua and Israel's sin, their covenant infidelity before the throne of the Holy One. Satan knows what he has to do, and it would seem that his case is closed. And he can argue from the Scripture's themselves. For example, Exodus chapter 20, verse 7. Don't turn there, but take the command to not take the Lord's name in vain, right? The Lord commanded Israel, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Think about it. Israel and Judah, who Joshua is representing, had nearly a thousand years of taking the name of Yahweh in vain. Not only because they had called upon him falsely, not only because they had sometimes worshipped golden calves, calling them Yahweh, but think about it. God, in his mercy, had revealed himself as the God of Israel. To this day, he is the God of Israel, among his other names and titles. God had in his mercy and kindness identified himself with these people. So for nearly a thousand years, God has had his name, God of Israel, blasphemed. Because the way that Israel and Judah have conducted themselves, God might as well be the God of sin. Do you see? 
They've taken his name in vain. And the point is, in Exodus 20, verse 7, God said, for Yahweh, the Lord, will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. God must punish, for God is holy and just. He's not going to just, you know, say, ah, don't worry about it. I'm feeling pretty good today. God is holy and just, and Satan knows it. All Satan has to do in order to condemn Joshua, in order to condemn Israel, the chosen and elect people of God is bring up the evidence of their sin and blasphemy. And God will have to punish them. Their sin is serious. This is why down in verse 3, Zechariah sees Joshua clothed with filthy garments standing before the angel of, the, of Yahweh. Literally there in the Hebrew it's unpleasant, but it's the reality. He's standing there in robes, garments that are covered in excrement. The furthest opposite from cleanliness that the high priest was to go before God with. In the Old Testament ceremonial law, there were all these washings and purifications that the high priest was to go through. And here he is standing before the very throne room of God with filth, dung excrement all over him he's a filthy sight he's a filthy stench in the throne room of God and not only Joshua but the nation Bible doesn't shy away from describing the nature of sin Joshua was like Isaiah a man of unclean lips who lived among a people of unclean lips and even though Joshua himself might have been an upstanding man one of the more righteous men among Israel he nonetheless was corrupt from the heart as every sinner is so Satan knows God would not let the guilty go unpunished after all Satan had been cast out by God for his rebellion Satan knows very well that God is just and that he punishes. So by all accounts, Satan's accusations cannot be countered. But then Zechariah hears a voice. Zechariah sees Joshua in his filthy robes representing the sin of Israel before the throne of God. He sees standing, Satan standing there ready to accuse him. And then he hears a voice. The voice of Yahweh And it's the voice of the angel of Yahweh, who is Yahweh. And he says, Yahweh rebuke you, Satan. This is, again, fascinating. That the angel of Yahweh is distinct from Yahweh and yet one with Yahweh. And he rebukes Satan. He speaks up. Christ speaks up to Satan and says, Yahweh rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, Yahweh who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Christ speaks. And in the face of the sight and stench of Joshua and Israel's filthy sin, Jesus speaks directly and presumptively to Satan. Doesn't even give Satan an opportunity With all authority, he shuts Satan up by rebuking him in the name of Yahweh, his own name. I want you to note several things. First of all, about what he says to Satan here. First of all, he authoritatively authoritatively commands Satan. Jesus Christ, pre-incarnate here, but 
God the Son authoritatively commands Satan. This angel of Yahweh only, not only has the authority of Yahweh, he is somehow able to silence Satan while invoking Yahweh's name. And Yahweh's name, included in Yahweh's name and God's name, is God's justice, God's holiness. So somehow, the angel of the Lord is able to silence Satan by invoking the name of the justice, just and holy one. How is this possible? Secondly, I want you to notice, far from distancing the Lord from Israel, as you might think here, you might think if God is done with Israel, that there be a little bit of, of, of distancing here. Well, Joshua isn't so bad. Joshua is a believer. Joshua is a good guy. But no, notice what Jesus Christ, the, the angel of the Lord says. He, he says, Yahweh who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. It's about Israel and about Jerusalem, the capital city, about Judah. Listen to this. Christ establishes the authority of his rebuke of Satan on the basis of God's election of Israel. Do you see it? The God who chose Jerusalem rebuke you. He's not backing off of election of Israel or Judah. He's not toning it down. He's not laying the groundwork for some kind of transfer or shift to another entity. Christ looking Satan square in the eye. The Lord rebuke you. The Lord who chose Jerusalem Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the place where God has been dishonored. It's in a bunch of rubble and the temple's hardly even built. He doesn't avoid election. He brings it up and uses it as the basis of why Satan needs to close his mouth. This is what Paul refers to in Romans eleven twenty nine. 29. The gifts and calling of God are irrevocable irrevocable. The God who chose Jerusalem is the God who chose Jerusalem yesterday, today, and forever. And they know who Jerusalem was. We know what Jerusalem is. He wasn't shifting. It wasn't a sleight of hand, wink, wink, yet Jerusalem, we know is a city now, but somehow will be this mystical group of people. Zechariah knew who Jerusalem was. Joshua knew who Jeru- what Jerusalem was. We know what Jerusalem is. Christ brings up the election of Israel and Jerusalem here. Thirdly, I want you to notice, Christ then, in his response, calls Satan the accuser to the witness stand. Do you see it? Verse 2, is this, referring to Israel, Joshua is representing them, is this not a brand delivered from the fire? He's he's cross-examining Satan. Amazing. And he's... In Amos chapter 4, verse 11, God references, refers to Israel as a firebrand delivered from a blaze. It recognizes that God has overthrown Israel and Judah like Sodom and Gomorrah. But nonetheless, that there's this idea that God always had a remnant of the nation and that he hadn't given up. They're like a brand plucked from the fire. I had a a, a brush fire uh, last Friday night. It was supposed to rain uh, a lot, and uh, this is a pretty big pile, and it had been dry for a while, so I just wanted to be safe and make sure that the rain, you know, they wouldn't go elsewhere, and I mean, I was looking at the radar, the weather, everything was saying, you know, tons of rain was coming, so I started this, this fire going, and, 
and uh, there was supposed to be no wind, and all of a sudden the wind starts picking up, and the rain that was falling, no rain. And I'm thinking, oh, fantastic. It's going to be in the news. Local pastor lights whole hill in Pembroke on fire. And uh, so I quickly am scurrying about, and I was able to just let it part of it burn out and get the rest of it doused with water. And so in this big pile, there are some, I mean, that fire consumes. I mean, it turns most of it to ashes, so there's nothing. But of course, in the midst of that pile, there were some sticks that were just burned, but they were like a firebrand, and you can pull them out. And that's what God's saying. He's consumed Israel in judgment with fire, and he will in the future, but he will preserve a remnant, and they're like a firebrand. And he's calling Satan to say, you see it? And think about it. Even in Zechariah's day, God had judged Israel in the north. God had judged Judah in the south. God had hauled them off. But here they are still. A few thousand people maybe. But here they are still. And here's the high priest. And here's Zerubbabel, the descendant of David. They're, they're not recognizable as a nation. They're like a firebrand. But Christ calls Satan to witness. They're, they're, they're still here, aren't they? Christ is acknowledging that Israel is guilty and has gone and will undergo severe judgment and yet is like a firebrand delivered. And God didn't just promise to save a few individual Jews. Of course, he's done that and he will do that. But the context here is about the nation, the land. So how can this be? We need to move quickly. But we're getting to the best part. How can this be? How can Christ defend a sinful nation and individual sinners like Joshua and us, elect or not? How how can he possibly do it? When the record of sin is clear, the justice and character of God does not change, and he had said he will not leave him who is guilty unpunished. How can Christ rebuke and silence the accuser of the elect? Well, he does. Look in verse 4. I'm sorry, verse 3. The the text, I mean, it's just a moving scene. It, It zooms in on Joshua and Israel's sin, represented in the filthy garments. It doesn't tone it down. And then the angel of the Lord, verse 4, Christ answered and spoke to those who were standing before him, these angels that serve in the throne room of God, and Christ commands them, remove the filthy garments from Joshua. Just like that. Remove the filthy garments. And of course, the filthy garments in verse 4, the second half, it's clear that the garments are not just dirty clothes. They represent iniquity. He removes There's sin. Christ is the sin remover. He removes the sin of sinners. Remove the filthy garments. He takes it away. And then he says to Joshua, again he said, the angel of the Lord, Christ says to Joshua, see, he he brings Joshua's attention to it. See, I have made your iniquity pass away. We don't know right now exactly how. We, we know this morning. But here the text asserts that Christ takes away the iniquity of sinners. And he does it. 
Joshua didn't do it. Israel couldn't do it. We can't do it. Christ removes sin. I have made your iniquity pass away. This is the glory of the sin-atoning death of Jesus Christ. Joshua may not have understood fully, but the fact that this servant, this messianic figure, the angel of the Lord, that Christ would somehow remove the sins of Israel and remove the sins of his people is clearly taught in the scriptures. He's removed their sin in a moment. And if they don't know right now, if they didn't know then, they will know on the day, we'll learn later in Zechariah, when they see Jesus, the one whom they pierce and they mourn for him. And in that day, their prayer of confession is recorded in part in Isaiah 53, where in the last days, a remnant of the nation will confess about the Messiah, about Christ, that by his knowledge, the righteous one, God's servant will justify their many as he will bear their iniquities. Because he was numbered with the transgressors, yet he he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. He poured himself his soul to death. He removes the sin of his elect. And so with full authority, Christ looks Satan square in the eye, shuts him up, silences him, commands the angels, I want you to take off those filthy garments. And, and, and then he tells Joshua, see, I have made your iniquity pass away from you. Sinners here this morning, if you have trusted in Jesus Christ, this is what Jesus does. He removes your sin. He removes our iniquity. He takes it away, and the way he did it was by becoming the scapegoat on the cross, as it were. He took our sins, the wrath and justice of God upon ourselves. And as Paul says in Colossians, he nailed the debt, the sin debt that we owed. God nailed it and pinned it to the cross in the person of his son. He's removed our sins as far as the east is from the west, but that's not all. Did you notice the text? I said this was a text on the the doctrine of of forgiveness of sin, how God removes sin, but I also said it's one of the best texts in all of Scripture on the imputation of Christ's righteousness. Imputation, big word, I know, but oh, it's a lovely word. It means that, that God credits or gives to sinners something. And what does he give them? Look at the text. He says to Joshua, See, I have made your iniquity pass away from you and will clothe you with festal robes. He's not talking about new garments physically. He's talking about removing Israel's sin, Joshua's sin, every sinner, elect sinner's sin, and clothing them in robes of his own righteousness. That's what Christ does. As you trust in him, he removes your sin because he bore it away at the cross and not only does he remove your sin but Jesus came you ever thought why why did he live 30 years or so why because he had to live a life of obedience unto God 
a life that you have never lived, could never live, and I can never live, and I could never live. He perfectly fulfilled the law, obeyed it, not only down to its letter, but to its very heart. He loved the Lord his God, his Father, with all his heart, with all his soul, with all his might. He never sinned. He never, for one moment, he lived and fulfilled the law perfectly. And what God does in Christ is for the sinner who comes humbly, repents, is God takes his or her sin away and then imputes credits the righteous life and obedience of Christ to you and wraps you, as it were, in that. And that's pictured not only in the, Old, in the New Testament, but in the Old. Isaiah 61, a renewed Israel in the last day says, I will greatly rejoice in Yahweh. My soul will rejoice in my God, for he has clothed me in garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. wonderful. God removes the sins of his elect and God wraps them in the righteousness of his own son so that Satan can say nothing for the justice of God has been satisfied at the cross in the person of Christ and as for lack of obedience Satan has no ground for we are by faith joined to Christ and the obedience and the righteousness of Christ that belongs to him, God graciously imparts to us so that we stand before God, not merely as ourselves, but clothed in the righteousness of Christ himself. Satan may rage and accuse. Israel may to this day be as though dressed in filthy robes before God, God's not done with Israel. I would have to give up the doctrine of election to believe that. But God not only elects nations, he elects individuals. He saves individual sinners. And you may be here this morning and you may understand for the first time that apart from Christ, you're standing before God filthy in your sins. And that's the way it is. And the good news is that if you humbly acknowledge your sin, and if you call upon God to save you, that God is gracious not only to Jews, but that the intent of the gospel from the very beginning, that the good news of salvation would go to all peoples, Jew and Gentile, to all nations, so that as you call upon God, as you ask him to save you, as you humbly repent and cry out for salvation, God will come to you and he will remove your sin and he will dress you in the righteousness of his son. Christ is our defender and our advocate. Christ is our sin remover. And Christ is our righteousness. And if God can and will, in closing, if God can and will render such glorious salvation to Israel, to the scoffing of Satan and the world, God has still chosen Jerusalem. He's not not holding up his election to the polls of the opinions of men. Again, his gifts and calling are irrevocable. 
If God can and will render such glorious salvation to Israel, will he not do the same for we who by his electing grace and choosing are in Christ by faith? So that with the Apostle Paul, we can say, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who, even Satan, who who can be against us? God is the one who did not spare his own son, but delivered us over for us all. How will he not also with Christ give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? Romans 8, 33. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? Silence is the right answer. God is the one who justifies. I have taken your iniquity away, says Christ. God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Paul asks. Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. I don't know about you, but I am very, very, very thankful that Satan, standing before the throne of God, who has an immense amount of material to work with in regard to me. My heart, my sin, I am very, very, very glad that there's another person in that throne room. And he's the angel of Yahweh. And he's Christ. He's my sin remover. And he's my righteousness. Satan has nothing on us. Praise be to Christ. Let's pray. Oh, such good news, God. Thank you for giving your servant Zechariah this vision. Thank you for opening the window of heaven, as it were, giving us a little picture. I pray if there's any here today that need their sins removed and to be dressed in the righteousness of Christ, that even now he or she, no matter how young or old, as simply as he or she knows, would call out to you to pray in his or her heart, asking you for the salvation that you give in Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.